Thank you, Francis, for your prayers and reading the Word of God for all of us here this morning. Since we last met seven days ago and we entered into our study of John 14, what a tremendous, heart-stirring, heart-transforming study it was, the height of Christ's teaching to His disciples. Well, since then, that evening I met with uh, three premarital couples at Francis' home and taught on the blueprint of God's marriage. I met with our, our leaders, um, Bob and Marcus, Monday morning at 6 in the morning uh, for our elders and leaders meeting. Wednesday morning, I met with uh, Huey to go over our administration uh, at, at church. It was a you know, four-hour meeting, a five-hour meeting. Huey says three. I remember as five. And then our family drove down to Palm Desert in triple-digit weather. And I spoke five times from Titus 2, 1 Timothy 4, and Proverbs 31. Did one Q&A. My wife did one sermon teaching to the women on Titus 2 and also did a Q&A. Saturday early afternoon, we left the purgatory at Palm Desert. <laughs> Felt like purgatory with the heat. Came down to, uh, to our home. A few hours later, the flock shepherds gathered. We had some in uh, commemorating the Olympics at Greece. We had Greek food, Greek, Greek dinner from Daphne's, and then we had our teaching from discipleship, apostleship, and decisions in the church, and so in eight days, this is my 10th sermon, and in about an hour and a half, I'll be in FOF, giving my 11th, so if Titus 2 comes out in the midst of my study in Psalm 73, you will understand. Well, I had endeavored, I had wanted to teach from John 14, continue our study there, but in the busyness of ministry and business of life, I did not want to give a rushed effort in our study of John 14. And the theme of John 14 is so great, it is so jugular, that I was pressed to take a, take a step back and consider the enormity of our subject matter from John 14, considering the unique troubles that grieve the Christian's heart, the burdens, the troubles, the anxieties that oppress Christians throughout history that uniquely trouble Christians. So I wanted to step back this morning and consider Psalm 73. Because here is an Old Testament saint, a man named Asaph. Beyond that, we know very little of him. And he has the same oppressive thoughts in his heart. The same thoughts that were drowning Peter, John, and Thomas, and the disciples of the New Testament the same or similar thoughts, similar troubling anxieties was oppressing him. Now, let me turn our attention to verses 25 through 28. And this is his conclusion. What beautiful words. And we sang these words this morning to our God. Whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is my strength. He's the strength of my heart. He is my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. What words of strength. What words of testimony. What words of strong faith and commitment to our God. But we must realize that Psalm 73 ends this way. 
But he began from a completely different perspective. In fact, if you go to the beginning of Psalm 73, you will note that Asaph's heart at the beginning of this chapter was from a complete opposite side of the spectrum. He began, began his prayer, began this song with a question. And the fundamental question of Psalm 73 is this. How can a good God, how can a righteous God, how can a noble God, a sovereign God, allow the righteous to suffer? At the same time, how can He allow the wicked to prosper? This was an oppressive question for Him and an oppressive question for all the righteous throughout history. How can God allow this? How can God allow the righteous to suffer in so many ways and yet at the same time, the ungodly, they seem to prosper. Many Christians wrongly think today that faith in God comes with a guarantee of freedom from trouble. Do we not? Where do we get this from? It's, it's because of so many our evangelistic appeals have been tainted with this prosperity message. A false promise that if you come to Christ, then no more problems, no more heartaches, no more disappointments. Oftentimes we hear testimonies in that way, do we not? You know, I had all these problems, all these difficulties, all these heartaches, and I became a Christian, and my problems are solved. I'm living from victory to victory. No more struggles, no more frustrations, and no more pain. And when young Christians hear this, and they live out the Christian life, and they come to the realization that this is not, in fact, true, their faith is severely shaken and time to time, that question shakes the best of us. Why do the righteous suffer? Why am I suffering? And why is it those who are wicked, they're so happy, so content, so satisfied? Psalm 73 gives us many answers to this question. And as we partake of this medicine, you will find that it nourishes our souls. It'll give you strength to stay. It'll buffet your heart. It'll give you hope in Christ. Let's go to Psalm 73. And you'll find that Psalm 73 divides neatly into two parts. Verses 1 through 15 depict the trial of the psalmist's faith as he observes the wicked, and their blessings. 16 through 28 is his triumph of Asaph's faith. It's where he turns from protest to praise, from doubt to declaring the goodness of God. The affirmation of his faith is found in verse 1. He declares, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart, here, Asaph declares the foundation of his faith. That God is good. He is good to Israel. He is good to those who are pure in heart. And yet, at the same time, this, quest, this declaration is the source of his anguish. 
Asaph believed that God existed. He believed that God is good, that God is sovereign. And this tru- these truths were the source of his problem. His question is, if God exists and he is good and he rewards the righteous, he is all powerful and he is in all control, then why is it? How can this be? It doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense. How can it be that the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? A very serious question. One that has precipitated many different explanations. Four different explanations have been proposed for this question. The atheists, their answer is, God doesn't exist. Clear, obvious. Look at the world. God can't exist. A simple observation, a simple reading of the LA Times, of CNN.com, will reveal that God does not and cannot exist. Look at the world today. Second explanation is, by a cynic. And he says, yes, God exists, but he is not good. In fact, God is cruel. He's, he's a jokester. He's a cruel God, and he's playing a big cosmic joke, and the joke is on us. He's watching us with his cohorts, and they're having just a great time laughing at our misery, at our perplexion. The liberal says, yes, God exists. And yes, God is loving, God is good, and God is kind, but this God, He is not all-powerful. This God, He is not sovereign. When we come upon tragedies of life, my wife and I heard recently that a seminary graduate, one of the graduates graduated with me the same year, his wife um, passed away with two young children, a 23-month-old and 11-month-old. And we were just heartbroken. Well, the liberal would say, that proves that God is not in control. That cannot be the will of a good God, of a merciful God. Therefore, God is good, but He is not great. The fourth proposal is a proposal that is found in the Scriptures where a biblical faith does not permit us to deny any of the attributes of God we maintain that not only that God exists, we also maintain that He is good, but we also believe that He is sovereign. He will not be mocked. He will bless the righteous and He will judge the wicked. And in Psalm 73, we see how this is so. We see the answer that supports this proposal. Go to verses 2 and 3. The psalmist has two concerns. This anomaly, if you will, the the tension in his theological paradigm caused the crisis of faith. He he describes it in poetic terms. The the frame of his mind, the state of his heart, it was precarious. Verse 2, but as for me, my, my feet had almost stumbled. He was walking along a precipice high up on a mountain, and he almost stumbled. He was walking, and he almost slipped and fell over. The spiritual stability of the psalmist had been shaken, and he identifies the root cause 
of him almost stumbling. Verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, Asaph's confession here is crucial. It tells us that it is man's perspective, not God's. Asaph here honestly gives us his bias towards his perceived reality. Everything that he saw, everything over which he agonized, was colored by his sinful attitude of envy. As he saw the wicked, the ungodly, flaunting their prosperity, flaunting their peace, he was envious. Asaph was consumed with greed, not grief. He was not distressed by their sins, but he was distressed that in their sinfulness they were successful. This tells us that we can be grieved by the right thing for the wrong reasons. I mean, listen to that. I mean, probe your heart. You can be grieved concerning this world, concerning your neighbor, concerning your family, but it can be motivated by greed, by envy, by jealousy. And that is what Asaph honestly says here. His first problem was envy. Second problem was the reality. The prosperity of the wicked. Verse 3, second part. The rendering prosperity here um, doesn't do us justice. The, the original Hebrew word in verse 3, the pro- word prosperity, is the word shalom. When he saw the shalom of the ungodly, he was troubled. Because as a covenant Jew, he believed and understood that shalom was only for the righteous was only for the good Israelite. When he saw peace upon the wicked, this troubled his heart. Shalom was so uh, ingrained in their understanding that this was their greeting and their goodbye. Shalom. What, what did this mean? Shalom had the idea of total package. I mean, the presence of peace. Peace with God. Peace with man. Peace within family. Peace with yourself. It spoke of a prosperity that went beyond just material prosperity. There's prosperity spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, physically. It was a complete package. And the true Israelites believed that this shalom belonged only to good Israelites, those who were impure in heart. But when he saw shalom in the ungodly, it oppressed him, it puzzled him. He mentions again Shalom in verses 4 and 5. He saw their physical prosperity. Look at verse 4. They had slim and healthy bodies. Verse 5. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken with trouble like the rest of mankind. Verses 6 through 9. He talks about just the pride that comes along with their prosperity. Therefore, because they have no trouble, they have no heartache, because they're healthy and strong, they wear pride as their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their heart overflows with follies. They scoff, their tongue is filled with pride and arrogance. They scoff and speak with malice. 
and they talk with religious lingo. They set their mouths against the heavens, their tongues struts the earth, and they say, and they flaunt their wealth in the world. And they even deny God with their, with their mouths. How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? I do not believe that these are Gentiles, pagan people, who are who Asaph is describing here. I originally thought that the wicked, the ungodly, were foreigners who surround the Israelites, like the Canaanites or the Samaritans. I, I now come to conclude this is not the case. He is talking about ethnic Jews, Jews who are professing believers in Yahweh and yet living in sin. Nowhere in this psalm are the wicked called by any name that would identify them as Gentiles. Verse 1 seems to focus on God's relationship to Israel rather than on mankind. And the theology of verse 11, how can God know? Knowledge in the Most High reflects that their theology is not pagan in origin, but decidedly that of an Israelite. So my conclusion is that the wicked of Psalm 73 are wicked Israelites. What caused Asaph distress was not that the Gentiles were prospering, but wicked Israelites were prospering. You know, and I can understand that. I, I, I see similar parallels in my own heart. I, I am not distressed by the prosperity of the wicked in this world, like Dennis Rodman's of the world, you know, Bill Gates, you know, all these uh, rich people, I mean, I don't want to mention their names, Hollywood stars, living in clear sin. I don't lose sleep over them at all. I don't really, really think about them much at all. But what oppresses me at times are when, when I see professing Christians and professing Christian leaders who profess Christ, profess the same faith as I do, and yet there is no obedience, there is no lordship, no cross. In fact, their lives are marked by compromise, life marked by shallowness. In fact, they live for this world. They live in sin. They encourage others to live in sin as well, live in compromise. And yet, there is blessing and blessing upon their lives. They do not obey the scriptures. They are not seeking holiness. Not only do they believe in wrong doctrine, they, they teach wrong doctrine, but they are prospering. They are growing in terms of this world. They have no worries. Things work out for them. That is oppressive to me. Maybe it is to you. So can you identify with the next two sentences of Asaph in verses 13, through 15, 13 and 14. Have you ever thought this? Why am I bothering? Why do I, why do I even care? Why am I running this race? Why am I praying for this person and trying to evangelize and trying to grow as a Christian? Well, that's what Asaph is saying. Verse 13. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. For nothing. For absolutely no reason, I'm trying to be a pure man. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. 
All day long, I've been plagued, I've been punished every morning, all for naught, all for nothing. And then verse 15, he says, but I could not say this. I could not come to the temple, I could not come to church and say these words out loud because I would have betrayed your children. Asaph, in his struggle, was a wise man. He did not share this thought with others. He did not voice his struggles until he came to a biblical conclusion. Why? Because his confession would not aid his fellow saints. In fact, he would be betraying fellow worshipers. He would be hindering them. Therefore, he struggled alone in his heart. He was oppressed, yet he was silent. When he tried to understand all of this, verse 16, it was a wearisome task. And then his perspective changes. In verse 17, there is a dramatic change of heart. His mind is moved from testing to triumph. The inner debate and doubting of the psalmist is resolved, not by reason, but it is resolved by worship. As he comes into the sanctuary of God, and he considers the end, considers the conclusion of the matter. He sees that there are, they are set in slippery places. That God will make them fall to ruin. Verse 19, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. As he comes to worship God... He has a dramatic change in perspective. Instead of protest, there is now praise. Instead of grief, his heart is turned to gratitude. Instead of bitterness, his heart is filled with blessing. Now, what changed his outlook? What, what caused this? Did he think it through? Did he find answer in his, answers in his own heart? No, one word changed his perspective. And that one word is worship. Worship. It was not a change of place that transformed his outlook, but a change in his position. He was looking down when he went to worship. He looked up, and in that change of position, his perspective changed completely. Let's look, at, let's look carefully at worship's composition, how it changed his heart. First of all, worship reminded Asaph of his responsibility to the righteous. Let me repeat that. Worship reminded Asaph of his responsibility to the righteous. Worship in ancient Israel was corporate. It was something that was done as a part of a community. When Asaph came to worship, he was not alone. And when he came to the temple and he saw fellow worshipers, he realized that to abandon his faith would be to abandon others. To give in to his temptations, it would be to tempt others. That sin in his life was not only an offense to God, it was stumble others who are worshiping God. He realized he was he's not an island. He's not living in isolation from other believers. That he is in a community of believers. And as they are accountable to him, 
He is accountable to them. True worship reminds us that we cannot ignore fellow believers. A great reminder, is it not? That the church is a great source of accountability. That as we come on Sundays, as we come to our flock groups, as we have fellowship, we realize that we're not running this race alone. We're running with fellow believers. And as we are counting on them, they are counting on us. You know, I, mean, play, I play some sports. I try to anyways. And playing sports, individual sports, is a lot easier than playing team sports. When you play an individual sport and you fail, you just fail yourself. And you feel bad, but it ends there. When you play a team sport and someone is counting on you, there is a lot more pressure because other men, other people are counting on you. They're depending upon you. And when you fail, you you sense that you've let others down. Well, that is the same thing in worship. That It's not Jesus and I as Christians. It's Jesus and us. We're running this race together. How many times? You know, I realize I need Christians. Christian life is so tough. I need my wife to depend on me. I need to be reminded that my wife is depending upon me. That my daughter is depending upon me. That my fellow laborers at Cornerstone. And that all of you are depending upon me as I am depending upon you. That encourages my heart to persevere in this race, I'm sure, for you as well. Secondly, worship dissolved Asaph's envy. Worship dissolved his envy because it reminded him of their ultimate destiny. Asaph had concluded that righteous were suffering, the ungodly were prospering, But this was a decision too hastily made. His conclusion was temporary. It wasn't based upon an eternal perspective. His conclusion was based on human reasoning, not on faith. As he went to worship, he realized that God had placed him on slippery ground. That in a moment's time, their prosperity will turn to peril and judgment. That... They are living a dream, but they will awake from this dream to a nightmare. For us, it will be the completely opposite. That we struggle in life, we will awaken to heaven, eternity with Christ. When he saw the final destiny of the wicked, it cured Asaph of his envy. Short term, they were an object of envy, but from an eternal perspective, they were to be pitied. Worship caused him to view life from an eternal perspective rather than a temporary one. And then worship, look at verses 21 and 22. Worship not only gave him an eternal perspective, a true perspective of others, it gave him a right perspective on himself. Verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Worship dissolved false pride and gave Asaph a penitent 
repentant spirit. You know, the protest of verses 1 through 14 was based upon Asaph's pride. He's saying, why do the righteous suffer and wicked succeed? The presupposition of that is, I am righteous. How come I'm suffering? Because I am righteous and they are wicked. How come they are succeeding? A wrong presupposition. Only a man who thought himself righteous could reason, for nothing I kept my heart pure. And for nothing I washed my hands in innocence. Asaph was convinced that he was a righteous man. And therefore he deserved prosperity. He deserved shalom. His problem with the wicked was exactly the same. He saw himself as distinct from sinners. But when he went to worship, Asaph was forced to see himself, comparing himself not with the wicked, but comparing himself with God who was holy. And when he went to worship, he saw him as he truly was, a sinner. And he saw that he was like a brute beast. He was an animal in the sight of God. So he saw himself as God saw him. Worship forces us to see ourselves as God's. God sees us. And so in worship, he was moved. He was a Pharisee, right, judging others. Luke 18. But through worship, his position was changed as a tax collector, sitting in the back row, there not looking up, beating his chest, God forgive me for I am a sinner. And then verses 23 through 26, Asaph saw the advantages of affliction. Saw the advantages of affliction. Verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. At the outset of the psalm, he assumed that suffering was inappropriate for the righteous because he believed that suffering, adversity, was, was evil. But when he worshipped God, he came to understand that adversity was a blessing from God. What he failed to appreciate was the detrimental effect prosperity had on the spiritual lives of the wicked. Prosperity made the wicked even more greedy, more violent, more oppressive. It made them more prideful. We must not think that because we're prosperous, God is blessing us. Christians can handle trials. But Christians often can't handle blessings. If you, think, if you see your life and you go, wow, God has blessed me in so many ways, be careful. Blessings are often sources of great temptation and, and oppress, oppression to the soul of, toward, towards one's faith. Asaph saw this in worship. That prosperity produced pride even to the point of blasphemy. Asaph, on the other hand, his sufferings, his affliction, though unpleasant, had the great beneficial effect of drawing him to God, 
suffering has this purifying, uh, refining power in our lives, is it not? Where suffering draws us to Christ. Suffering forces us to our knees. Suffering causes us to open the Bible. So for the believer, we cherish affliction. We thank God for trials and heartache, disappointments, pain of life, because it draws us near to God. Therefore, the psalmist concludes in verse 28, it is good to be near God. These sufferings, these afflictions, it is good because it has brought me near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Through worship, Asaph saw prosperity and suffering from a completely different perspective. The wicked who are not near God will ultimately perish. The righteous who are suffering with unique troubles as saints, they are blessed because God is drawing them to Himself. Let me conclude with a few closing thoughts. A few closing thoughts. First thought, just to reiterate, is that suffering is actually a blessing. Suffering in this world, in this life, is a blessing from God. It is a great rebuke to the all-too-common theme that is prominent in Christian circles. The mentality that God's blessings come in the form of financial success, material abundance, and physical well-being. We are told that these things are a sign of God's blessing, and if these things are not present in your life, then God is not blessing you. This is not a theology that has come from the Bible. To gain such a theology you are doing a very selective reading of the scriptures. You are violating every rule of sound hermeneutics. You are doing textual gymnastics, ripping text apart out of its context to support a faulty position. Nowhere does the Bible teach that earthly blessing, material prosperity, is a result of righteousness. In fact, the Bible teaches us again and again and again that suffering and trial and sacrifice is the norm for the true Christian. In the oldest book in the Bible, the first book that God inspired is the book of Job. Not Genesis. What is Job's message? That the righteous, like Job, suffers. We can't explain why they suffer, suffer. But we see God's sovereignty, that God caused Job to suffer for God's purposes, for God's glory, that Job might truly trust in God who is sovereign, who is gracious, who is kind, who is loving, that God not only exists, but that God is good and that God is suffering. That is what the first book that God inspired teaches mankind. You know, I don't know your future. I don't know the future of your family. I don't know what's going to happen. But I know this. I know you will suffer. 
And I know I will suffer. Will you suffer as a Christian for the glory of God? Or will you suffer in blessings of this world in ungodliness? Second principle from Psalm 73, and let me state this very simply, is this. That envy is the enemy of evangelism. Envy is the enemy of evangelism. When he saw the wicked in the beginning, he had no desire to witness to them. There is not even a mention of him correcting them of their sins, telling them about God's goodness, about God's deeds. Why? Because he was envious of the situation, of their lot in life. When he came to a right position in his faith, at the end he says, I will tell of all your deeds. I will tell these ungodly people about the good deeds of God. It tells us that envy is the enemy of evangelism. It is nearly impossible to evangelize to those whom we envy because to envy the wicked is, is to desire to be like them. Worldliness is devastating to our witness because we desire to be like the wicked more than we desire them to be like us. We want what they have, earthly blessing, rather than wanting them to have what we have, spiritual blessing. It is a sad thing to see Christians envying, mimicking, desiring the world because to the degree he or she desires this world, to that degree he or she cannot be a light, cannot be a salt, cannot be a witness to this world. We will be effective evangelists only when our hearts are set on eternity, only when our hearts see the reality of eternity, of the end. Finally, let this psalm instruct us concerning the vital role worship plays in our lives. If there is a turning point in Asaph's change of perspective, it was from his worship experience. It was in worship when he was prostrate before God, Asaph gained a right perspective about himself and others. He stopped focusing on the present he stopped passing judgment on the pleasures of the wicked and he pondered their ultimate and certain judgment. He stopped considering himself as a righteous man. He stopped comparing himself with the wicked and he rightly viewed himself as a sinner, not deserving of God's blessings, but dependent on God's grace and mercy. He was during worship, he, he ceased to envy the wicked and began to consider his obligation to the righteous. Listen to this. Hear me out. Worship is not leaving behind our lives and coming into the presence of God. Worship is more bringing our lives into the presence of God and where we see our lives from God's perspective. That is true worship. To see our hearts in light of God. To see our families. To see our sufferings. To see our struggles. To see our envies to our finances, our possessions. How we spend our time. How we spend our energy. Everything in life. We bring it to God during worship. And we see our lives from God's perspective. And then our hearts are turned. Where we are moved from being a brute beast in the sight of God to the one who brings God praise 
who brings God delight. May we be ever thinking in our worship times with the Lord and the community of believers so that we would see our lives rightly from God's perspective rather than man's. If trouble has filled your heart to stay, pain, anxiety, disappointment, may we go to the root of our troubles. Could it possibly be because we envy this world? May worship of our God cure our hearts from this disease of greed and envy. Cure us once for all so that we might be able evangelists to this world where certain judgment, certain condemnation awaits them. Our Father, how the Word of God is a mirror to our souls. As we open up the Scriptures and unfurl its truths and we look intently into the mirror of God's Word, how it reveals to us the true state of our hearts. And we see our sins, our weaknesses, our shortcomings. And God, yet though the Holy Spirit is so gentle, so gracious, so kind, the Holy Spirit is so patient with us, helping us step by step, um, washing us of our practical sins, so that not just positionally, but practically, we might be righteous in the sight of God and the sight of man. Lord, may we confront all the secret idols of our hearts. May we excavate and bring out all the secret sins that reside in the crevices of our souls. May we confess honestly before you, Lord, what they are, so that you might cure us of the troubles that ail our souls, and we might in turn be able to bring much glory to you in this world. Lord, may Asaph's psalm be a soothing balm to our hearts, soothing medicine to our souls, um, drawing us near to you this day. As we worship you this day, Lord, may we remember our fellow brothers and sisters who are worshiping next to us, that we are accountable to them as they are accountable to us. May we worship you together in spirit and in truth. In your son's name we pray.